This morning, uh, excited you're with us. Uh, it's gorgeous outside. Thanks for being inside uh, when you could very easily be outside enjoying that. So thank you so much for being here this morning. And um, I just want to share uh, briefly this morning, um, one, in the fact of uh, Corbin's been with us since January. And uh, when we first started talking about an intern and Moving forward, things just kind of fell into place, and he's been able to really help a lot with assimilation and college and youth and et cetera, um, whatever I've thrown at you to do. Uh, and so just really had a, a great opportunity to get to know him, and hopefully you have as well. Um, the crazy part is that he is finishing up already and is going to be uh, out of here by next week already or so. Yep. So he's got some kind of plans about getting married or something. And Nothing so I said, whatever. Um, at least probably a nice, I don't know, it's fine. Uh, but uh, just really uh, excited to have him and all that he's been able to do. And so if you're here uh, because of him this morning or just wanted to support him, thank you so much for being here. Um, it's, a, it's a huge support to have people out there. Um, and so I want to just kind of introduce him, and uh, we had talked about, you know, is there anything in the internship that you haven't done that you really want to do? He goes, I don't know, preaching? I said, <laughs> all right, give it a shot. Uh, I said, no, this is a great opportunity, man. I said, it'd be a great opportunity for you to, to, to get this under, uh, as an experience. And so we talked it through, uh, and um, we knew we had some time left at the end of his internship, and so an opportunity to him to kind of start our series off this morning. Uh, so if you weren't with us, uh, at Easter we talked about being transformed by the same gospel, and we're going to head into a brand new series this morning, and I want to just start it off with an explanation. Um, this Everyday Church is an opportunity for us, really at Community Bible Church, to almost go back to our roots, uh, to go back to the idea of if we were to plant a church again, right? If we were to see another church planted, there's a lot of things that kind of go into your head as far as what it means to plant a church. Where do I live? What's the demographic? Do I, do I like where I'm planting this place? Has God called me to this place? And as I plant a church, the biggest question you have to ask is, am I willing to do church on a regular basis when there isn't an established Sunday morning or things like that in place? In other words, how do I live my faith in the way we were designed to outside of a church building. And there's a lot of questions that go into that. And so this series is meant for us to kind of think if we uh, were not able to meet on a Sunday morning or if we just saw life from the way that they saw back in the, Old in the New Testament, how do we live church every single day? And my hope out of this series is that this isn't more for you to do, but instead this is already, and what you're already doing, taking Jesus into what you're already doing. So the analogy I'm going to give is this, and I'm going to turn it over to you because, you know, <laughs> you know, he has a microphone and whenever this happens, this yeah. happens. Uh, but I want to just share just as far as we think of Christianity and we think of how this series is going to play out. The biggest thing I can think of is we all have different things that we're juggling on a regular basis, whether it's our jobs, our finances, our friendships, our leisure, our vacations. And on a regular basis, you are probably juggling at least 14, 15 things in the year. And what I think can help sometimes happen is we can just throw church into, into the mix of what we juggle on a regular basis. And so if there's anything that kind of gets put down, it makes juggling easier. But ultimately, sometimes church just, like I said, gets added to that mix. I want us through this series to think it's not, church is not just something I'm juggling, but church is the center of the wheel 
and the rest are kind of like spokes that go out from my identity as a Christian. So in other words, because I follow Jesus and because I have a relationship with him and because he has placed me in this area with this church, that's my center. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I am part of this family. And as a result, how do I live that out in my family? How do I live that out in my career? How do I live that out in my vacations? How do I live that out in a regular day-to-day life? So it's not something I'm juggling. It's who I am. We're just saying about it. It's who I am. And it gets lived out in different areas. So we're going to talk about that over the next four to five weeks about how do we actually live this out on a regular basis and ask the question this morning, what if, what if, what if we were designed to live that way? What if this wasn't an accident, but we were designed to live church out every day and not just make it a Sunday thing? So that's my hope. That's my prayer. I'm going to pray for Corbin as he begins, and then uh, I'll let him go from here. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your design that you have placed us specifically in this area, in this church, in this location for this time. For those who are in this room, Father, that have a relationship with Christ, that they have turned their whole life over to you, I pray that we would see that our identity is you. Our identity is we are a follower, a believer of Jesus Christ first, and we get to live that out in all the different areas you're asking us to go to. I pray for this morning for Corbin to give him wisdom. I pray that your Holy Spirit would give him insight into your word and into the text he's prepared to give. I pray that we as a congregation would receive it well. And uh, we thank you for your word and for your encouragement this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks. Yeah, so as Joel mentioned, I've been the intern here, and I just want to start off by saying thank you and just kind of give my appreciation for um, this opportunity. There's a lot of people here to support me specifically for today, and it's just really, really something I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for um, Joel and all the other directors and people who I've interacted with. This whole experience as an internship has really been something that's, that's been an answered prayer. I really looked at my spring kind of coming back from college before moving away and what was that going to look like? How could I use my faith, my abilities to um, do something for the kingdom, do some sort of ministry? And doing a sermon back in January wasn't necessarily something on my mind. Um, it was Joel's idea first, by the way, not mine. And so with that, I just, when he brought it up, I just was like, you know, that's, that's kind of an answered prayer that I've been looking for, a way that I can push and grow my faith. It was something I really had to sit on. It's obviously a really um, scary idea at first to think that you're going to pick up this kind of responsibility, but I'm really grateful for the opportunity. I'm grateful that he brought it up, that he pushed me into it, and I just want to say thank you to everyone um, kind of as I get started. So today we're going to be in First Peter 1, 1 through 12. As we kind of get started, I just want to say that I think that 2020 was a really great year for us as a church, and I think that that may leave you kind of scratching your head initially of, of why would that be the case, but I think it did a lot of really good things for us. I think that there was, we had gone to, in, we had gone to be too comfortable in some ways, and kind of as Joel had mentioned, our church was never meant to revolve, our faith was never meant to revolve around just what we do inside of this building, what we do on a Sunday morning. And so when that was taken away from us, when we were left to be in an uncomfortable area where we couldn't necessarily meet and gather on Sundays, where we couldn't do our community groups and different things, it may have challenged our faith in different ways. It may have pushed us to look at what does our faith look like on more of a daily basis when we don't have all these things to go to and we don't have groups and events and sermons to hear all the time. 
if your faith looked a little non-existent, then maybe that was a wake-up call for you in seeing that faith in God was not central to your life, but again was one of those things that we were just struggling. Over time, especially recently, even in my life I've seen about for people that have lived longer would have seen it as well. The cultural shift that has gone on around church, church used to be something that was a lot more central to the society we lived in. It used to be something that people went to, even if it was something that they only went to on a Sunday and they were in this mentality. So many people were coming in and out of church doors. It was a thing that was held with so much respect. People thought that whenever they had uh, negative events in life or shortcomings or any of that, the thing they turned to was the Bible. The thing that they came to was God. And especially in the past decade or two, we can see how that's shifted a bit in which the people that we interact with every day don't necessarily have that view. They don't have that perception of the Bible. We used to be able to have this mentality that everyone comes to us, we open up the church doors, and as long as we provide a good Sunday morning product, as long as we do something good in terms of the gospel message, the worship, as long as those things are all right, then we're going to be okay as a church. We're going to spread the gospel because new people are coming in all the time. Even here we can see visitors that come in just on their own are pretty infrequent. It's hard to get people without the invitation of someone just to walk into the building these days. And that's common across a lot of churches because we cannot have this Sunday morning product mentality anymore. Church in general and faith has moved a little bit more onto the outsides of the fringes of society. There are 85 million Americans that never plan on attending a church service ever. And that was a number from a decade ago. And if we just kind of sit on that for a second, really let that settle in, that's a lot of people. And that was from 10 years ago, and we can imagine how much that that has grown since then. With that idea, we really need to start thinking of church as a community of people sharing ordinary life. And we can't think of mission just as an event that takes place in ecclesiastical building. We can't have our faith confined and limited to what goes on in between the doors here. We're going to see that in Peter, the situation that he was writing from and the people that he was writing to were in a very, very similar situation as to what we find ourselves in now of church and their faith having to be an everyday manner. It was, they were on the fringes of society. The first church didn't appear for nearly 200 years after Jesus. It's really easy to think that possibly they had all this and everything kind of came up out of the ground as soon as Jesus resurrected. But as Joel had mentioned last week, things went on quite normally for a lot of people in a lot of different ways immediately after the resurrection. Life wasn't too different for most people. And church didn't pop up for 200 years, the church that we view as a building. And so we're going to see that in Peter, who's writing 40 years after Jesus' resurrection, is writing in a time that can be very applicable to what we have now. If you have your Bibles with you, please uh, open them up and read along with me as I read through these 12 verses. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, 
If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. If we look at, starting in verses 1 and 2, the way that Peter's addressing the people he's writing to is extremely important to us. They are referred to as elect exiles of the dispersion. So the dispersion was a term for the Jews being scattered beyond Palestine after the Babylonian exile. The recipients of this letter were primarily Jewish, and so Jews, especially at that time, would have been extraordinarily familiar with the Old Testament. Anytime that these references or things would have occurred, it would have kind of clicked in their heads, and they would have they would have been taking notice of this. And so they automatically knew when Peter referenced the dispersion that even though this wasn't exactly them, that was, their, that was their history and their ancestors, and so that was going to do something for them. Peter was writing in the style of a Jewish dispersion letter written from Jerusalem to the Jew- Jewish exiles. It would seem that Peter modeled this letter after the prophet Jeremiah, which was 6th six, century B.C. to the exiles of Babylon in Jeremiah 29.1. We can see that. At the end of 1 Peter in 5.13, Peter says that he is writing from Babylon. This is a cryptic reference to Rome. He is not physically in Babylon, but they would have been picking up on this idea. What Peter is really trying to get at is that he is writing as an exile to people that are also exiles because being an exile is not a physical place. An exile is not always somewhere physically that we find ourselves in, but it is very often more of the environment, more of our circumstances that we are in. We as Christians, them as well, all of us are exiles, and we should think of ourselves as that because we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. That is our homeland. That is where we ultimately long and find ourselves to be in. And so it should be no surprise that we feel like foreigners and that they felt like foreigners and exiles in a foreign land. Luke 4.24 says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. I think this is something that really spoke to me a lot. It's a verse that I've always found comfort in, and I think it's something that's also very applicable to these people. Exile is not a physical place. Exile can be in our relationships. It can be in a lot of our personal experiences. And for me, this meant a lot to me because I didn't become a Christian until right as I was exiting high school. It wasn't until I was 18 that I became a Christ follower. And I went off to school. I went to Illinois where it was eight hours away. And that was where most of my faith and journey began. And that was where all of my growth in Christ began. And it was really shocking to me. I went to school. I felt like I was very fortunate and blessed to be around a lot of people who grew me in a lot of ways and helped me see and follow Christ in new ways. But when I came home, I had all these past relationships that knew me as who I was in high school. And 
it really surprised me that at times that person was not well received. The new me was not received well. They thought that somehow I had been poisoned, that things had changed. And I couldn't understand this because I could see all the fruits of Christ in my life. I could see all the work he's done, all the sin he's helped bury for me. And yet I came home and in many ways I was not accepted. And I could have thought, looked at my old high school self and thought there's plenty of reasons why that immature kid wasn't the most likable person in the world. I had, I had great friends anyways, but it wasn't as if that was the person I am today. And so that gave me a lot of comfort to think of this kind of exile, this rejection that at times people face, that Jesus faced in his time. And I'm sure if any of you guys have had later in your lives, especially these radical transformations in Christ, you know what that's like. You know what it's like to lose friendships or to be looked at differently because of the way that you've decided to follow Christ. If we go on to verses three through nine, or yeah, we go on to verses three through nine and look at six and seven specifically, it says we have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes those tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At this time, there wasn't state-sponsored punishment. We can usually think that of Paul being imprisoned and stuff like that, but that wasn't necessarily the case at this time for this particular group of people. The kind of trials and uh, testing that they got was more in terms of their relationships. It was social ostracization from their peers. They were put on the margins of society. They, at the time when the Romans were trying to say that the resurrection was fake, these people were very much so the minority and they weren't being imprisoned, but they were being treated poorly by their peers and even at times their family members. They were dealing with all sorts of negative outcomes as a result of them deciding to follow in Jesus Christ. Especially with social media these days, it's easy to think that everything is so good and that nothing bad happens to us and it's easy to believe in that lie as a Christian too, that if we do the right things, that if we come to church, if we read our Bible, if we pray, if we do all those things, then, you know, somehow we shouldn't be experiencing these trials. We should be exempt from that because we've done the right things. But it's, it's very clear here that, that Peter tells us, and, and from Jesus' experience as well, that that is not the case. And if we remember that we're exiles, if we hold on to that, that idea that we're foreigners in a foreign land, that we're exiles, then it shouldn't necessarily be a surprise to us, and we should be able to live with encouragement enjoy in that. I'd like to share with you guys just a couple different um, experiences that I've heard from people of the kind of trials and persecution that people face in other areas of the world. We should be encouraged by the fact that living in America, that we have the freedom to express our faith in a much greater way than what they could even at that time or what people still experience today. It's easy to look at what was going on during that time in the New Testament and think that we're removed from that and that maybe doesn't happen anymore. But I want to share a couple things that just maybe really put into perspective the kinds of things that people have to experience in other parts of the world at expense of their faith. There's someone I know who is a missionary in China and in China there was a, there was a pastor over there who he knew that at some point that he was going to be imprisoned for his faith. He knew that eventually time was going to catch up with him and there was nothing else that was going to happen except for him being put in jail. And so in preparation for that, what he did was 
he has been consistently trying to memorize the entire Bible from front to back as much as he possibly can. And so he's been doing that in preparation, knowing that one day he's not going to physically have that Bible with him, that he wants to be able to share the gospel and share as much as he possibly can with people with having the Bible still in his heart and in his mind when he's put in jail. Another example that I have is there's another missionary who's in India, and in India, Hinduism is extraordinarily indoctrinated into their faith there, and it's a big part of their culture. And so in Hinduism, they have these things called pujas, which are basically vases or statues of sorts that are kind of decorative, but they're very central to Hinduism faith. And so when Indian people who were Hindus, when they would eventually make that choice to follow Christ, what they would have to do when the, when the missionary knew that they had really made that choice, they would break their pujas and they would shatter them. And so when they would shatter their pujas, that would automatically show that they have broken away from their Hinduism. And similar to the people in Peter's time, they, were, they would automatically experience being shunned and ostracized from their friends, from their family. They knew what the expense was to follow Christ, and it meant losing a lot of things. One, one verse that I always find to be very comforting in that sense is Philippians 3, 7, 8. It reads, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Those people had to give up a lot of things. The people back then had to give up a lot of things. And we should be extraordinarily encouraged by the idea that we don't have to give up all the things that they maybe had to. We have to make sacrifices, but we are living in such a more free world now and such a free environment to share our faith and express our faith. You could be wondering why we would even want to live like, like exiles, why this even sounds appealing, because obviously I've just listed off all this myriad of, of negative things that can happen, all these negative experiences that have come for myself and have come for other people. But if we look at verses three and four, it says, we have been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Inheritance was used to describe the promised land and Israel's place in it. So again, this is something that would have clicked in their heads. The inheritance was something very, very special to the Jews. And now there's this new inheritance being offered in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. And because of that, we know that the inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The work that he did is already written in the history books. It's already done. We never have to be worried about that being taken away from us. He is a living hope. There's not going to be a day where we wake up and suddenly the resurrection is not true. We can live in the joy and knowing that we can have hope in that because it is never going to change. It's never going to be taken away from us, especially in a day like today where so few things are guaranteed in, in our lives, guaranteed on this earth. We should hold fast to that hope because we know how foundational it is. And if you've ever had your hope in something else other than Christ, you just know how unfulfilling, how unsatisfying that will eventually be. There's people that chase after either it's relationships, family, friends, whether it's money, other idols, it could be business. For me, it was soccer my entire life. If you chase after those things, then eventually you'd know that they just cannot sustain you. It was so freeing for me to, to look at Christ and eventually put Christ as the center of my life rather than something like soccer, knowing that soccer was never going to be able to give me that same kind of fulfillment 
that same kind of joy that I never have to worry about being taken away. It was a crazy time, crazy transformation, but if you are kind of on the fringes today, if you're not sure where you stand and you're concerned about putting Christ to the center of your life because of what maybe things will change, what things will look like, what you might have to give up, I just want you to know that from someone who couldn't have imagined anything else in the world except chasing after a dream of something that wasn't Christ, it is so worth it to follow Christ. It is so worth it to give it up. In Philippians, we read that, that verse again, everything I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Everything is lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. There's nothing that, that is not worth giving up in exchange for the glory that comes with that. If we look at verses 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Like I mentioned, the Roman government tried to cover up the resurrection at this time. They tried to lie. And so you can just imagine how difficult it would be to share your faith during this time if we look at even our own lives and how patriotic and nationalistic we can be at times and how much trust and faith we have in our own government or a political party. The Roman government had that kind of influence on those people. And so for them to say one thing and us or those people as Christ followers to completely go against the government, you can see how difficult that would have been, how difficult it would be for them to hold on to their faith in the midst of all these struggles and all the Roman government trying to tell them otherwise. I think something I've often heard is it's, it's, we've been separated for 2,000 years from, from all this. We've been separated 2,000 years from the resurrection. And so why, how, can we, how can we have any proof of that? How can that make sense to us? And it can feel even like if we had more immediacy, if it had happened, like in this case, 40 years ago, if it had happened 40 years ago, it would be way more easy to believe. But, you know, we can see that that wasn't the case when they were just such a minority. And I think it's even a great, great benefit to have the 2,000 years of separation from the, from the resurrection. And I think that's because we can see how much work that Christ has done over 2,000 years. We can see how much the church has grown. We can see how much the gospel has spread across the world. We can see everything that he's done. And that should be an encouragement. That should make it easier to believe in the resurrection, believe that he rose from the dead today than it could have even 2,000 years ago because we've seen how much persistency and how much power has gone into that. If we look at verses 10 and 12 now, it was revealed to the, the prophets that they were not serving themselves, but to you. We always want everything to happen so immediately. There was a 400-year period between the last Old Testament prophet and when Jesus came. So the prophets, they knew, they didn't know when exactly, they didn't know at what time, but they knew it wasn't going to happen during their lifetime. They knew that eventually things were going to come to fruition, that their prophecies were going to be answered. But it was 400 years. It was generations and generations down the line. And they, they knew eventually it would come. They did not know when, but they knew eventually. We should, have this, we should have this posture when we think about sharing the gospel. As someone who's tried to share the, share the gospel a lot with either teammates out at school or other people, it can easily become discouraging to think it's been a week, it's been a month, it's been a year of doing this and there's no fruit. I just don't see it taking hold in their lives. But we have to know 
that God works over so much time. And I know that there's seeds that I've planted and seeds that many of you guys will have planted in people's hearts and lives that you will never see come to fruit in your own life. It may occur 30, 40 years down the line and you may not ever know that that person became a Christ follower. That could have an impact in this case even for generations and generations to come and you just may never see it. I can think of this in my own life, especially with my grandparents becoming Christ followers in their adult years and watching my brother and I grow up and I just know how much persistency they had in hope and praying for us and hoping that one day we would become followers of Jesus as well, that we would also take root in that hope. And it took 18 years of planting seeds, 18 years of doing little things, of praying, of sharing the gospel in whatever way they could before eventually I became a Christ follower. And that kind of impact could then last to hopefully my grandkids or my great-grandkids, similar to these prophets, well past my time and their time. It could be going for generations and generations to come. And myself even, or them, may not never see the full impact of that. That's the kind of impact that we need to have as an everyday church. Those prophets, they weren't speaking in a Sunday service. They just knew that they were having a selfless heart and sharing the gospel. This is the kind of, if we live as exiles and have that hope in Jesus, we should be freed to live like this in our everyday lives. How are we going to reach those 85 million people if the gospel is limited to just our Sunday mornings? If that's the only time that we live out our faith is whenever we're within these doors, how are the 85 million people ever going to hear about Jesus? And that's just here. There's so much unreached areas of the world. How will people know if we think that it's only going to happen, if the only work that we do that helps at all will be in these, in these doors? Research shows that the most important evangelistic work is not in the church, but rather in one-on-one meetings with non-Christians in lapsed group situations. Most of the time when people come to church, it's through invitation. That's the majority of people is invitation from someone else. We need to start having our faith be during other days of the week. And we're doing some of that. We're going in a really good direction with community groups and various things. Of We already see such a high adult percent involvement, and that's awesome to see that people are even already stepping outside of just this Sunday morning and joining community groups and fellowship. But I also want to challenge you guys in that in thinking that that is not the end of it. Just because it's not on a Sunday as well, the doing it within these doors or within a Christian setting, that's not the end of, of what our faith is supposed to look like. Really think about what it's supposed to look like just in our daily lives. Again, we need to look at church as a community of people sharing ordinary life, and mission is not something that just takes place in an ecclesiastical building. It's not all the work's not going to be done in here. As Joel mentioned, and for those of you who didn't know, I'm getting married quite soon, and one of the questions that the officiant asked us to kind of get to know us and get to know our faith background was, if you had to define the gospel in three characteristics, what would that be? And I want you guys to kind of think in your heads and and maybe go home and even ask yourselves this question, and I think this says a lot for us. I think this shows so much about our hearts because We are called and we are striving to image Christ. We are striving to image the gospel in our daily lives. And those three characteristics, what we truly think of the gospel, is going to shape how we we live our lives and how we behave. 
My three were grace, love, and sacrifice. If you think of those for yourself, especially for mine, listing those off, none of those revolved around a Sunday morning. None of those were confined to a single day of the week or even a couple days of the week. Those were all ways in which I just strive to live my life in all the relationships I see daily. It's not confined to only when I'm in a Christian setting. It's something I strive to be that's central to my life. It's not just something that I'm juggling. It is central and everything else moves around that. When we talk about this idea of everyday church and living out our faith, if you have any sort of mis- uh, misconceptions or if you're kind of confused by some things, I just want to clarify some stuff that I'm not asking you guys to attend a bunch of church events. I'm not asking you guys to always have to go to the prayer nights and different things. The, during this time, Peter and them, they didn't have church. They didn't have these events. I'm not asking you guys to do that. That's checking off boxes. That's meeting a quota, and that's not what I'm asking you guys. Jesus told us to pick up our cross daily and follow him. Our faith is meant to be central to our lives. It's meant to be something we do every day. That doesn't mean attending a service or attending a church event or watching a sermon every day. That just means always having it be a central part of our day. I want to challenge you guys as we kind of end off with something. I want you guys to really reflect and think about within your own lives or your families what this really looks like for you guys what living your faith out in an everyday way looks like, whether that's looking at it for just a week or a month, I challenge you guys to just commit some period of time of for this month, for the month of May, or for the month of June, for the week of whatever, whatever it may be, that this is what we're going to do and this is what it's going to look like to live out our faith each and every single day. Catherine's going to come up and close, but first I'm going to pray for us. God, I thank you so much for this opportunity. I thank you so much uh, just to be up here and, and share your word, God. I pray that we can really hold on to this idea of being an everyday church, of living out our faith in an everyday manner. God, I pray for the hearts of everyone in this room that you would just do work in their lives and that you would reveal to them what this looks like, that you would allow them to put you as central. I pray that they can have these conversations with their friends and with their family, Lord, and just really take on the weight of that, really take on the mission of what it looks like to put you first. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.